But uh, he keeps telling me to scoot over. Well, I want I want you to be able to see us, Michael. And there's a okay. backlight. But you know, so. I don't think he can see us, even though the camera. Oh, right. I could see you. Yeah, there's this window <laughs> back here. Uh, What's he saying? Oh yeah, hey, I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario. I'm a big fan of Buffalo, New York. Uh, oh, fantastic! I, I'm a I'm a big fan of any Rust Belt city that's fallen on disrepair, <laughs> that's basically struggling <laughs> to make it back. That includes Cleveland. That includes yeah. Buffalo. That includes Detroit. Yes. Toledo, all those great towns. Chicago's not quite as in that same league, but anyways, I love those places. <laughs> right. Not quite. All right, are you ready to go? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, let's see if we can um, get oh, this. Oh, just uh, by how long do you think we'll go for? Uh, we usually aim for about a 30-minute uh, episode. Uh, great. So, we start, yeah, we want to keep it right around there. So, if you can fit it in, that's great. Thanks so much for being <laughs> on with us. We appreciate yeah, it. We, yeah, I'm we, really glad. Yeah. We need to say all this on the podcast, though. Thanks for being among, you know, with us, all that <laughs> all that perfunctory stuff. We need to do that on the podcast. So are we ready, folks? We'll try. All right, let's see, let's see what happens here. This is just, we never really know. I keep trying. Do you hear something? All right. Uh, well, we're just going to start over. Maybe I don't know what got recorded and what didn't. That was so close. We, Michael, thank you for being here. We tried to get the music on for you to hear, and we succeeded. But then we what, couldn't. You hear stopped. It. Then we couldn't hear it. Yeah, we couldn't hear know. anything. Anyhow, we're joined today uh, by Michael Ware, who is the author of a new "Reclaiming Hope." Uh, he's coming to us from Virginia, right? Yeah, yeah, coming from v- right, Virginia. Why don't you tell us just a couple things about yourself, and then we're going to jump into your book and the stuff you've been up to. Sure. So uh, from Buffalo, New York, proud Buffalonian. Uh, so is my wife, which I'm even prouder of. And we've been uh, we've been married for five and a half years, and uh, we, we've lived in the D.C., Washington, D.C. area for uh, about a decade now and, uh, and go to uh, Restoration uh, church here in Arlington, Virginia. Mm. Nice. Yeah, and I can so appreciate the Buffalo, New York thing because I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario, one of the greatest cities in North America, by the way. And I'm not talking about Buffalo. I'm talking about <laughs> Hamilton, Ontario. But I do think Buffalo is an extraordinary place. I love it. Uh, I love Niagara Falls area. In fact, I'm going there next week uh, for uh, some speaking engagements. But anyways, Welcome to the show, uh, Michael. Yes. Um, you wrote this book with the title, Reclaiming Hope, Really Lessons Learned in the Obama White House About the Future of Faith in North America. And it's about politics and it's about hope. You wrote it, I can only assume, before the election of Donald Trump to be president of the United States. So my question to you is, and this is in all sincerity, it's not a joke. Many of us are struggling right now with the idea of hope. Yeah. Do you have hope? Can you still have hope? Have you lost hope in light of the election results? Uh, so, no, I have not lost hope in light of the election results. Um, as, as I try to make clear in the book, it's uh, it's uh, it's a dangerous place to have your hope in politics. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, I am open to a whole range of possibilities over the next four years and how Donald Trump is going to lead and, and how the country is going to um, uh, how is how the country is going to react in response to to his his presidency, um, but but no, I'm not 
I'm not without hope. I mean, I think it was it was a very interesting thing to see how President Obama and Hillary Clinton reacted to the loss, which was, you know, President Obama goes to the Rose Garden and uh, for a, for a guy who spoke quite a bit about politics and and uh, he he goes to the Rose Garden and says like, let's remember we have a big country we have. Um, and there's more to our country than just politics. He said, uh, you know, oh, we have we have families. We we uh, you know we live in communities, and we could help one another out. And so it was almost like, okay, this election is over, and it didn't go the way that uh, he wanted to. But he still had a responsibility to uh, help the country look beyond the electoral outcome. And I, I thought it was a now the rest of the Democratic leadership. Uh, that was still in power, right? That still had to go on. They're trying to continue to ratchet up things, um, but it was very interesting yeah. that the guy with the most, the most power, the most responsibility, uh, uh, actually used the election results to turn people to to look outside of politics for how they were going to move forward. Mm, right. Well, Dave asked if you still had hope. You begin the book, Reclaiming Hope, by talking about how. Sometimes people can feel hopeless in their families or their lives. And then you, you mentioned a little bit about pastors who feel hopeless, not about politics, but knowing how to talk about politics yeah. because they see their members um, maybe too consumed by politics. And so the pastors don't even know how to enter in. And, and it seems like that has just maybe become worse since you wrote that line. Yeah. Does that resonate <laughs> with, with your experience? I, I think quite a bit of the people I know um, avoid politics. But yeah, because it's so inflammatory um, and they don't want to create more fissures in their already fragile church That's life. That's exactly probably. it. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, I think, uh, can you all hear me? Because I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I think uh, we're at an absolute new place in politics. It's been building up and building up uh, through the antagonisms, I would say, that really became obvious in the for the second George Bush election. You remember that, Michael, when uh, really what it was was campaigning by shooting down the uh, other person. And, and it got pretty ugly. And as a Christian, I was watching that going, huh, George Bush claims to be a Christian and all he can do is attack his, uh, his you know, even when he was running uh, uh, in the primaries for, against McCain, he would, like, chop that guy down left and right. It just didn't seem wholesome. And I think it's been building and building and building to the point now where it's reached a crescendo and now everybody's giving up. That's where I think people have said, I've had it. There must be another way to achieve justice in the world and let the government go on and be what the government's going to do. That's where I feel the, the, the a grand majority of younger millennialist uh, kind of um, disillusioned Christians are today. Yeah. Well, I, thank you, Dave, for giving me the benefit of the doubt of being I didn't point to you when <laughs> I said that. But uh, I am almost 40 now. I'm a cusp. Cusp millennial, depending on when you cut off, but you're a millennial, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Where did your movement into politics then come from? You talk about this a little bit um, at the beginning of reclaiming hope. But how did you become a politically involved Christian? Yeah, so evangelical, if you call yourself, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's uh, uh, us millennials don't like labels. Watch, watch out. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so I um, it's it's really interesting. So. I, I, I can't really pinpoint it, but I've been interested in politics for uh, from a very young age. The, the best I can kind of do to to piece it together um, 
is my my grandfather was the most important guy in my life. He was World War II vet, greatest generation, came back and served in his community, was, uh, worked for the town, was head of the local labor union, um, and civics and civic participation was just very important to him. We weren't a hyper-political family, but uh, you, you voted, you that you you read the newspaper, you cared about what was happening in your community, um, and and so it was just um, definitely. By the time I got to middle school, I wasn't just uh, I, I was reading newspapers. I had political opinions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then another change happened when I was fifteen. Uh, I read um, I read Paul's letter to the Romans, and and that's a longer story we could talk about. But um, it changed my life. I wasn't. Uh, wasn't a Christian before that, but I've read Paul's letter uh, to the Romans, and it it changed my life. But 72 hours later, uh, I told my sister, uh, who was the first person I told I I gave my life to Christ, and then I thought, well, now I need to like become a pastor, go to seminary, become a pastor, because like, what else does a good Christian do? But um, hey, we have a place for you to go if you're still interested in that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> just kidding. It's good to know. I, I, I've been uh, the book has caused me to do some retrospection. Maybe I'll maybe I'll change up my uh, game plan a little. <laughs> but uh, but but after um, you know reading more scripture and, and talking to the pastor and some some trusted folks that that had come into my life. I decided I want to figure out what it means to be faithful in public things. And so that's, that's what sort of sort of really got me into politics, took me to DC where I went to school and, and, and yeah. Excellent. Uh, one of the fascinating parts of the book and ladies and gentlemen, we do recommend you buy this book. It's called reclaiming hope. Uh, and it's, uh, Tom, it's Thomas Nelson. That's right. Publishing. Yep. Yeah. Uh, by Michael Ware, W-E-A-R. Very interesting take by uh, what I would call an optimistic, hopeful millennial towards the future of politics and Christian involvement in politics. But anyways, uh, you talk about uh, President Obama's mutual suspicion, actually fascinating stuff in there about Obama's own pilgrimage to becoming a Christian himself, which I really enjoyed and could relate to several of the people in that book, including Otis Moss, who, <laughs> by the way, I don't know if you knew this, Jeffrey, but he was in a class of mine that I taught here at Northern really? Seminary. Yeah. But anyways, um, wow. uh, President Obama, would t- uh, you said there was a mutual suspicion between religion and secular America. And you talked about the kind of the conservatives exploit, uh, you know, the, the, the little red hot buttons of, of evangelical Christians, you know, abortion, gay marriage, and Democrats to take the bait, and then they feel uh, kind of uh, not knowing what to do with that, and so they avoid religion altogether, and they dismiss it in the public square. You seem to say neither option is good. How would you describe your understanding of the way religion and politics intersect and impact one another? Well, in this area, it's actually pretty close to what uh, then-Senator Obama expressed in that very speech, which is that it's a he called it a practical absurdity to think that you could remove faith from politics um uh, and so I, I kind of start from if if faith is motivating a um is motivating the lives of a uh, broad section of the american public then that's just a practical reality that then you have to you have you have to deal with just like you would 
just like uh, you, you would consider uh, other perspectives or uh, ethnic backgrounds or uh, yes. or or you know vocational backgrounds as part of building a, a pluralistic country and and in govern in uh, in governing and so um, listen I, I think that there's there, there's a number of ways that it can work um, I, I draw a first of all the Constitution draws some pretty pretty bright lines around how uh, church and state in particular, but then sort of um, that feeds into how faith and politics should mix. I, I draw a red line around um, the idea that, uh, which is difficult to enforce, but is a good principle to have in mind, that the government should should not uh, put its thumb on the scales of theological debates. And so the government should not try to influence how churches are are uh, are discerning and figuring out um, certain issues, uh, but outside of that, um, faith motivates a great number of American people, and so people of faith have the right to bring their faith to bear on their political decisions. Political leaders who are genuine, sincere people of faith, um, voters have a right to know uh, where the source of uh, uh, beliefs and values their politicians are. Are coming from, mm-hmm. and of course that brings a whole range of complexities. But uh, again, uh, uh, race, uh, uh, the fact that we're a country of both, you know, billionaires and uh, folks in poverty, like th- those things bring complexities to our politics too. And and the the job of um, you know our our country of our republic is to is to navigate those those differences. Yeah, so if I were to try to rearticulate what I think I just heard you say in about two sentences or less, which this is the skill of a theologian, by the way. <laughs> religion, we can't leave our religious commitments behind uh, because they are part of us. They are the way we are. They are the part of the decisions, the way we think about moral values, tell us purposes in life, etc. We, we can't just somehow enter the public square and leave all that behind. And therefore, it must be allowed into the, uh, the, the uh, conversation, the discourse of, of the public square. Did I, that was like three sentences, but is that close? Yeah, that, that's, that's fair, yeah. Okay, now Dave Fitch would say, <laughs> if you were in a church and culture class, yeah. this is Niburian to the core. <laughs> and by the way, our listeners are are expecting me to push you a little bit. Coastclaw, how are do you they? feel? About, are they? Sure? So, so basically, and I, I think it's important to make this case because I'm actually not uh, against it. Um, but it's important to make the case that. You can bring Jesus into the public square as long as it's your personal convictions, but try to make Jesus lord over the government, and now you've gone too far. What do you think? Uh, before you talk about that, Michael, you want me to talk? I about want Holesclaw to try to interpret, see if he can make any sense out of what not I just sure said. I have anything to add to that. Um. In other words, uh, and I feel like uh, this line becomes really crazy when, say, Jerry Falwell starts to say. Uh, we need um, a Supreme Court justice that will enforce the theocratic values of the, of Christianity on a nation. And I feel like there that at that place we get into this area that makes almost no sense to the modern Enlightenment mind. Do you have any comments on that, Michael? Because 
whole squad's drawing a blank right now. Uh, yeah, well, yes. so first of all, did, did Jerry Falwell say that? Uh, in those words, no. Okay. Uh, I'm not talking about Jerry Falwell Jr. now. I'm talking about the old yeah. guy that's been gone. Yeah, um, so so I, th- I think, right, so um, there would be some disagreement from some folks on what you, um, on, on the uh, denotation of what you said. Uh, on, um, uh, I, I would not disagree. I, I think that's exactly right. I think what, what happens okay, is wait, that uh, what, what happens, though, is uh, I want to hear you talk a little bit more about exactly what that means. That sounds like a phrase to me. Um, how would you then apply that to politics? Uh, all right. Um, so, Dave, should should Christians not have some sort of hope for a Supreme Court justice to support the values that they have? Um, okay, or, so... Uh, well, I used the word hope there. We might be getting off the topic here, uh, and we we want to stay on Michael's book, but uh, here's... <laughs> no, we are. Here's, here's kind of... Uh, let me put it another way. If um, if uh, we have a guy who runs casinos for a living become president of the United States, yeah, and um, we have a man who by his life models gambling as the way to get rich, mm-hmm. and we have a man whose lifestyle encourages everyone else to live their life like their life is a gamble, uh, and then he he puts into power or, or um, nominates for Supreme Court justice a Supreme Court justice who says we need a law to prevent people from gambling. Okay, somehow the disconnect makes no sense. And in actuality, the, the appointment of a Supreme Court justice is purely a symbolic event but makes no impact on society. So what I'm trying to say is we need a culture uh, where uh, Jesus becomes um, a center of who we are, what we do, and how we live our lives in order for the laws of the country to reflect Christian, um, what, what it means to be a Christian, not enforce Christian laws on a country and a culture that has nothing to do with Christianity or really doesn't make sense of Christianity. The, the, the one won't enforce the other. Laws have to come from a culture that uh, out of which they make sense. Yeah, so that's true in some sense. But I, I've done a little bit of writing uh, on this, and uh, you started hearing a lot about culture being upstream from politics after the disappointments of um, from the religious right of the George W. Bush years. There was a sense that they had finally gotten their man in the office, um, and they failed. And their reason for that was, well, the culture, the culture was going bad anyways. And so uh, it really wasn't a matter of anything that we did wrong. It wasn't a matter of the political tactics we chose. It wasn't a matter of what Dave was talking about earlier, which is that in order to win, we pursued a politics of antagonism that, that maybe uh, soured the culture, right? So uh, yeah. I, I think of uh, – I, I, don't, I don't think of culture and politics as on some sort of uh, – on some sort of stream or on some line where one feeds into the other. I, I think of culture and politics as sort of uh, uh, planets on which exert uh, or moons that sort of exert a gravitational pull um, on our lives. And culture can influence politics and politics can influence culture. So, um, uh, so I mean, right, an easy example is the smoking bans. Um, 
yeah. that major government efforts was were, were put behind um, making cigarettes not just uh, and smoking not just uh, you know legally impermissible, but the cultural effect is when, when my wife goes into a restaurant in another country and there's someone smoking there. Uh, there is a personal offense that comes from that. There's an expectation that, okay, if you need to smoke in your car, if you want to, you know, uh, harm your lungs in the car, but but don't do that. There is a new civic uh, norm on the table, and I would argue that that came. Yes, uh, maybe there was some cultural motivation that existed for those laws, but it was. In that case, it was the laws driving the culture. Uh, you could say the same thing uh, about, um, you know, there's a linear story that we tell about LGBT rights that, oh, it was like if it wasn't for Will and Grace, then we would have never had gay marriage. Well, in between Will and Grace and gay, mar- gay marriage were states advancing LGBT rights laws and uh, and uh, uh, major political conversation about hate crimes and LGBT bullying and all of this stuff that fed into the culture as well. And so... Um, what, what I'm concerned about is is this idea that well politics just isn't kind of going our way. It's it's complicated and and uh, uh, we can't see directly how our inputs lead to the outputs. And so let's kind of like unplug and let the government kind of uh, kind of let the government wor- work its will. And we'll just build sort of strong communities and be personally involved and do personal charity. Mm. Um, our, our politics is actually a reflection of who we are. Um, and there is a civic right. obligation um, as citizens. And as I argue in the book, if you're a Christian, uh, it is undeniable that politics will exert, whether you're participating or not, will exert great force on your life and your neighbor's lives. And so the the choice that you have is whether you're going to steward the influence that you already have. You can't choose not to have influence. You could just choose not to use it. Um, And that's a a critical conversation to have. Sure. Well, so it's interconnected. Dave's jumping. He wants to ask you another question, but I want to throw something out first. I want to push back a little bit. Well, I know Dave (laughs) wants to push back. (laughs) Well, that was good. No, that was really helpful, and I think there's a lot of merit to that. And so my question to you, Michael, before Dave, you know, jumps in, uh, is how – And so, so you're right. You can either have the abdication of politics and just say we're going to focus on our values, we're going to focus on the way we live, and then hopefully, you know, either we don't care what happens beyond or hopefully it will have some sort of indirect influence. And then there's this kind of connection, uh, well, if, if – politics and culture are connected that we want to exert influence how do you balance that desire from making christian work and mission all about influencing politics because that's what i've seen in the religious right and even on the left yeah uh is that now like any kind of public work or witness as dave and i often talk about it just ends up becoming voter guides yes that's right what i think a lot of millennials are like really upset by. like i don't just want a faith that's about a voter guide. oh completely Uh, yeah so how so how do you balance that and say yeah politics and culture are connected but then without tipping so easily into like let's just drive the supreme court let's then change legislation and now your public witness maybe in your neighborhood is just kind of like a second or a third or it's what you totally forgot. Yeah. So here's the first thing I want to point out is um, that it is exactly the kind of people that would ask that question that we need involved in politics. 
but it is also exactly the kind of people who would ask that question who are um, most likely to go the other way and and say, well, look at what politics is doing to the reputation of the church. We need to get out wholesale. The the, the problem with that is— So are you saying Fitz should run for Congress? Yes. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing the, right now. The, the problem is that um, if we get out— uh, we're not removing the Christian witness from politics. Um, the Jerry Falwells and the people who are all about politics all the time, the people who, who want to put politics at the center of the mission of the church, they'll just have the stage to themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so, so that's, really, that's really important. And so what does it look like, for instance— I've been doing a lot of talking lately about that, that has been born out of the experience of this last year. Um, I've been doing a lot of talking about the spiritual harm that our politics is doing. And as I've traveled around the country, I've come to find that uh, politics is taking up an emotional space in people's lives that it's not meant to take up. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, politi- our politicians are feeding off of that. Um, and they are posing themselves as capable of filling, of meeting voters' inner needs, their emotional needs. Like being our savior. That's right. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. Now, yeah. uh, there, there's one option, which is re- reject that wholesale, and but allow that to become the norm of our politics. I think the other Christian reaction would be to actually impose disincentives uh, for politicians that seek to use that form of emotional manipulation, that think that their role is to be in our living rooms every night. Um, And it, it may not be a winnable Right, because people are going to politics to meet their inner needs because there's a spiritual vacuum in their lives. Um, uh, And so those who get their inner needs met elsewhere um, uh, may be able to engage in politics in a more productive way, but that doesn't mean that they'll they'll win. So, so, you know, Mm -hmm. one of the one of the core lines in my book is that Christian political engagement has to be about faithfulness, not victory. And so, amen to that. So, so that that is that is my direct one sentence response to your to your question. See, Dave, he's Anabaptist. He's Anabaptist. We'll take you. We'll take you. Yeah, you're in. You won me over. Politics, Christians, are about faithfulness, not about victory. You're in. We got. I'm good. Grumpy David Pants over here. I am he's not the grumpy. Eeyore. He's the Eeyore of this podcast. He's got something to say, I guess. But <laughs> All right. Well, I, uh, let's get I'm back on task here, Jeffrey. Let's, let's uh, back here. Michael, uh, uh, okay, push back a little bit. And I know that this podcast, we got like 50,000 questions to ask, Michael, and we're only going to get to one more after this, I probably. <laughs> but, but, hey, I don't agree with you. I mean, I understand the dialogue between church and politics that you were pushing for earlier. You said sometimes... Government can affect culture. Sometimes culture affects government, and the two work in mutuality. I don't know if it actually has worked that way. Uh, the, the, uh, us Anabaptists see government as preservatory. We see the church as redemptive. But uh, So to understand the different functions there is kind of important for us. But, but here's what I'd like to say. The cigarette uh, example, 
Do you, I remember I grew up before you, either one of you. I was watching TV before either one of you were born. And I remember when cigarettes was everywhere. And I remember suddenly the doctor started realizing everybody's dying of lung cancer. And, and the actual effect of people dying so many times ways from cigarette smoking the information started to get out and pretty soon it affected the culture and it affected law the law was the last thing okay now let me make another point and then i'll hear your point um on um on uh civil rights the black church martin luther king um beloved community is written by charles marsh Uh, it talks about how all of the political organizing that happened around the church to bring black white and all of the antagonisms between races together and talk and and actually witness against the segregation and the racism of the South. That was from the church. Do you think government wanted to uh, uh, initiate and legislate civil rights legislation? No, it was, you all remember the Selma movie and all the, uh, it was, it was Martin Luther King with the backing of the church that got in the office and said, you do this or else the people, the people on the ground, the culture. Into whose offices though? Right, but it was the last thing that happened, not the first. And actually, it may. Have I just... I don't think that people would. I don't think that uh, Martin Luther King believed. I don't think Martin Luther King believed that the Civil Rights Act was the last thing. I think he thought that uh, you needed the law that that there wasn't going to be a, a, a furtherance of desegregation without the law. But the law. But the law. Put... The law. Okay, let me put it. Not the last thing. Let's put it. It came after ad hoc the movement on the ground. It wasn't an idea that LBJ woke up and said, you know, this is a good idea. No, it came from the church. Well, well, right, but is the Civil Rights Act possible without the Brown v. Board Supreme Court decision? Was the Civil Rights Act possible? Brown... Hold on. Was the Civil Rights Act possible? <laughs> Was the Civil Rights Act possible without the Emancipation Proclamation? So this is, this is what I'm saying, that actually, we yes, now... culture feeds into politics, but but political decisions feed into how culture reacts as well. And if we now are going to invite, if you think you're going to ignore one at the, uh, uh, at the expense of the other, then it's just not going to, well, I'm not saying ignore it, just put it in its rightful place. And actually I would suggest that the government taking over the role of civil rights issues and, and the decline of the church's involvement is what led to the new Jim Crow. The second Jim Crow, the more sub, the more uh, subconscious, beneath the surface, insidious Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander. Anyways, okay. <laughs> All this means is we're going to have to invite you to Northern Seminary for a lectureship and for us to talk more about this in public. We have to go to a final and last question, don't we? Uh, well, you got a couple more minutes. Yeah, or sure. You got to get going. Yeah. At the end, you and I thought this was very. Uh, you know, because you probably what you sent in your manuscript months ago, right? Yeah. A couple months ago, right? So you end with uh, two thoughts. You're like, I think there's two issues <laughs> that the church is going to be facing, uh, and not the church, but the culture. Uh, the two issues you mentioned are race and religious freedom, and I think the last couple of weeks couldn't have made that uh, any more true, uh, as far as the various executive orders on refugees and immigration, yeah. and just yesterday's. Um, it not, so we're recording on Friday. This will probably go up on Monday. Uh, but the president's or the national uh, prayer breakfast, and he talked about getting rid of the Johnson Amendment yeah. and <laughs> as a statement of religious freedom. Um, but I'm not sure 
that is good for the church to repeal that. Uh, but anyways, could you say more about those two issues and why you felt like those are going to be the, the thing, the front burners that are either, and I thought this was important, that are going to affect the church, but also affect how the church is perceived by the broader culture. That's right. Well, uh, on, you know, we've seen over the last few years issues of uh, racial injustice take center stage in American politics, which is not to say that they're new issues. It's to say that but they, that's because Obama was always bringing up race all the time. <laughs> that's right. That, just kidding, folks. I just know that. It uh, that was a joke that and was a, a, joke. a really bad one. Okay, yeah. But it was a joke, just to be clear out there, folks. Yeah. So, yes, uh, so certainly. And so because of the fact that as a church we haven't worked through a lot of these issues, um, the ability for the Christian church to witness in this new season is going to be affected by whether we move, whether whether we're able to take constructive steps forward as a church, and then um, whether whether those part whether uh, whether the church is going to be able to take proactive steps to both uh, stop uh, political action that that's going to harm racial justice and advance a political action that 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 will will advance it. Um, and so I, I spent a great uh, deal of the final chapter of my book talking about that. But religious freedom is important because uh, it's under new pressures right now. Um, and I am concerned about the ability uh, of religious institutions, not just the church, but Christian colleges and, and uh, uh, religious nonprofits, social service agencies, um, to be able to continue to serve their neighbors and continue to have a footprint and a, have an institutional standing in this country um, yes. uh, in, in a way that's that's enduring. In other words, um, if if the uh, if the individual is able to believe whatever they want to believe, but isn't allowed to s- assemble with fellow like-minded people and organize institutions around those beliefs. Um, and that that doesn't that isn't a strong foundation for religious freedom. That isn't um, that isn't going to bode well for um, for religious life, and I would say public life in this country to so um, constrain the marketplace of ideas in this country. Um, and then just on the on the flip side of those concerns is that religious freedom has become a hotly contested, polarized topic over the last decade. Um, and so it is now, uh, it, it is quickly becoming um, a, a sort of a election year issue, which is not not a good place to be if, if for a constitutional principle for religious freedom to sort of be up for grabs every two years. Uh, and so I'm, I'm very, very concerned about, about both issues. Um, that being said, I, I think there's a lot of um, promise that can come out of en- engaging, right, right? So in, in the book, it's not, wow, these two issues are, are tanking, we're, we're in deep trouble. It's actually, wow, if we could, if we could get, get these right, if, if, if we can, uh, if we can make some, some positive movement in the areas of religious freedom and racial injustice, um, then wow, we could be set up for a, uh, for, for new and bright possibilities for the American church and for the country for, for decades to come. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel 
like in the midst of a lot of hopelessness about our political the, la- the lack of any productive political discourse my hope is that the church would be able to be that place where uh Dave doesn't like to call it the radical middle, but this radical, moderate place where people could constructively talk and move these things forward. And unless the church does it, our politics in, in my like will never do it. I keep seeing these editorials by David Brooks, who's just like, he's uh, God bless him. He's just like, we got to have like, where are the moderates? Like, where are these people? Where are they going to come from? And well, it's just like, they're not going to show up until the church and other people demand that we start like getting along and working together and the church should be equipped to do that. Yeah. So church should be the place uh, that can open up space for the right wingers and left wingers to come together and listen to one another because we have an ethic. We have a way of being together. That's that should right. at least. Yeah. If Jesus could have uh, revolutionary zealots <sighs> and tax collectors That's exactly all right. working together, then we as Christ followers should be able to do that too. But it, Hey, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, uh, sorry to cut you off. No, no, no. Uh, I was just going to say uh, that o- that only works, uh, as you said, uh, that if if the church does not become consumed by politics, of right, exactly. or it, it, the church exactly. can only be a meeting place um, if its primary organizing principle is not political influence, or if, or if a primary absolutely. organizing principle is not. Uh, uh, Caesar shall rule, but Jesus shall That's rule. right. Absolutely. But anyways, I just want to say, Michael Ware is founder of Public Square Strategies. He was, you were director of faith outreach for Obama's, President Obama's historic 2002 re-election campaign. You, you were part of the Office of Faith-Based Neighborhood Partnerships. You were on the inside of White House. This book uh, is worth reading if... Uh, if for no other reason that you were on the inside and understood the dynamics. And I want to encourage you, Michael, thanks for all you've done to help uh, bring these issues out for discussion in a new way. We're in big trouble in the church in the way we think about politics. I encourage you. And, hey, maybe if you're, if you're, if you're in Chicago and you have time, uh, maybe we can get a forum for you to come and deliver a lecture of some sort, challenge us, and then have a, a Q&A discussion afterwards. I would love to, only if I could take you to my favorite place in the world, Italy, for dinner afterwards. But uh, Where is that? Oh, it's right that? right in Chicago. I'll take you. It'll be the time of your life. <laughs> Wait, where, where, oh, where, where is it. it? I think I might know. Right where? off Millennium Mile. It's right on Ontario Street, I think. Oh, I got a couple other better places to take you, my friend. Because I know what I know what people in Buffalo like, and I can find this place for you. Okay, we'll do it. God bless you, There's Michael. Where we love you, or thank you for coming thank you on both. the show. Appreciate it. Bye bye now. <laughs>